This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about climate policy and the challenges in getting Americans to embrace the kind of changes it would take to make real progress against climate change. In particular, we're talking about Americans who lean conservative, the ones who live in red states. That can be a hard sell, especially in rural areas where changes to the ways we extract energy from our environment can cause major disruption to livelihoods and communities. But many parts of rural America, especially those that are dependent on agriculture, are deeply impacted by the new pests, historic droughts, and increasingly erratic growing seasons that come with climate change. Senator John Tester knows all about this. He knows about the impacts of climate change on the family farmer because he is one. And he knows about the challenges in convincing rural, conservative-minded voters to trust the government to do something about it because he is a three-term U.S. senator from the state of Montana. And he's also a Democrat. So you would think that he would be the ideal messenger for President Biden's climate agenda, part of which is baked into the massive infrastructure bill that the president is trying to pass through the Senate right now. And yet, Senator Tester is far from bullish about the prospects of red state Americans accepting the regulations or spending that would come with major climate legislation. In fact, in this conversation with me from this year's Crosscut Festival, the senator is pretty frank about how bleak the prospects are to move his constituents or his colleagues across the aisle toward government-devised climate solutions. I have to warn you, this is not a hopeful conversation. This is the reality. And it's something that I think we all need to hear. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting ubs.com team slash the Arbor Group. All right, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. So uh, we're going to get to climate policy, uh, but I'd like to start with this $2 trillion infrastructure plan. The Biden administration released this plan about a month ago. Uh, Senator Tester, how's it going over with Montanans? Well, I don't think they know enough about it yet, to be honest with you. Um, uh, we're just in the beginning phases of this from a Washington, D.C. standpoint. And so uh, I think what's going to be critical with this plan is going out and telling people, uh, what, it's, what we hope to accomplish with it. Uh, you know, th this plan is a little different than other infrastructure plans uh, because the definite, uh, definition of infrastructure is a little broader than normally thought of. Uh, not only does this take in roads and bridges and broadband, uh, 
but it also deals with things that I hear a lot about in Montana, and that is housing and child care and, and issues that revolve around those kind of things that impact the economy greatly. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's too early to tell what Montanans are thinking about this infrastructure plan, but as time moves forward, they will develop an opinion. It will depend a lot on how, uh, how it's messaged by both sides. I know that you've, you know, you've really pushed the, the housing and the broadband uh, aspects of the infrastructure plan. Clearly, those are things that you feel your constituents are interested in. But, you know, um, there are uh, aspects of this plan that are clearly uh, focused on uh, uh, climate change, on environmental policy. It's a, a big part of, um, of what the sales pitch is at the national level. Um, but I do have to wonder... Uh, is um, is that is that the right first step forward uh, while pitching the plan in rural areas um, and specifically in rural Montana? I think I think that most people in, in rural areas will uh, would expect that uh, we're talking about roads and bridges. Um, you know, 30 years ago, broadband wasn't a part of it. But if this pandemic has taught us anything, is that broadband cell service really important? Both of those. And there's far too many areas in Montana and in rural America in general that either are unserved or underserved. So I, I think that that when, when we're talking about what we're going to do to try to, uh, you know, address climate change, um, and, and the Biden administration has uh, put some money towards uh, charging stations, I think uh, that's a reasonable thing to do. I also think that we need to take into consideration, uh, however, what the private sector is going to do normally. Uh, would, uh, would, would a gas station normally put up charging stations if there becomes enough demand? So, uh, but, but it isn't just about charging stations either, Mark. I mean, the truth is, is our grid needs to be updated to make sure it can handle increased charging stations because these, these charging stations are going to be very, very uh, uh, intense. People don't want to spend two, three hours getting their car charged up. So they're going to suck a lot of energy, a lot of electricity. And so making sure that our grid meets the standards is also part of that infrastructure bill. So it's, uh, uh, I don't know that it's the right way to address it in rural America, but I know it's an issue that has to be addressed. And once again, I would say um, you've got to go out and sell it in rural America. Uh, rural America just aren't going to read one statement by, uh, John Tester or anybody else and say, well, this is really a good idea. You've got to go out and tell them what the advantages are, tell them the kind of jobs it's going to create, tell them what it's going to do for the economy and how it's going to impact rural America. And then I think you can get their support. Well, you know that your colleagues from the other side of the aisle are going to be out there uh, with their own messaging on it. Um, when your constituents are hearing that argument, does the environmental aspect of, um, of this this giant package uh, become a liability? Well, I, I will tell you that until um, we do a better job, uh, we, the folks who are concerned about the changing climate, until we do a better job talking to rural America about what climate change costs us in jobs, in, uh, in treasure because of, of the kind of disasters that are occurring with more regularity and the kind of money it takes to fix these disasters, uh, then I think uh, I think we're we're playing from behind uh, when it comes to climate. Uh, and so, uh, what I would say to you, Mark, what I would say to the folks who are 
out there uh, talking about climate, what I said to the folks today I met with that are concerned about climate change, is we have to do a better job telling Americans what's at risk here. Um, uh, I farm, I've been on our family farm for since the late 1970s. This is a farm that my grandfather and grandmother patented uh, over 100 years ago. Uh, I can tell you that I have seen things, and I think if I've seen them, every farmer's seen things. Over the last 25, 30 years, it simply didn't happen before that. And they're not necessarily good things. Um, they're things that put, put production agriculture at, at more at risk of potential crop failure or disastrous events taking your crop uh, before you get a chance to harvest it and get it in the bin. So, uh, you know, leading with charging stations, um, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to lead. I'm not sure this package does lead with them. But, but if I was going to talk in rural America, I would talk the fact that electric cars are coming. We need to get ready for them. Uh, we need to make sure that not only do we have charging stations, but a grid to support those. Because remember, rural America was not electrified until FDR came in with the New Deal and, and set up electric co-ops. So that's only been a generation or two away. We can still remember that. And so I would suggest we talk about it in those kind of terms. If we just say, hey, we're going to put uh, electrical charging stations on, and as some Republicans would say, we're just going to push these electrical vehicles on you whether you like them or not. I don't think that's fair. And, and I don't think it's real. I think electric vehicles are coming and we need to be prepared for it. And I think uh, if we talk about it in those terms, I think rural America would be more receptive to it. I wanted to ask you about this. You know, you, you are and kind of moving maybe off the infrastructure plan, just talking about environmental policy in general. Um, you know, you're, um, you are uh, skeptical of, um, of government overreach, uh, you know, at, at least uh, for a Democrat. Um, and you wrote about it quite a bit in, in your book. Um, and I'm just curious uh, how you square, um, you know, uh, introducing environmental policy or backing environmental policy that may have these impacts on private citizens and private businesses as far as requiring um, requiring compliance with uh, a new way of, of doing things, um, you know, uh, uh, an elimination of, of fossil fuels and an adoption of, of new technologies. Uh, I, I'm, you know, you've said that, uh, that government regulation cannot be one size fits all, but how do we make the scale of change uh, required to tackle uh, climate change without there being um, uh, across the board regulation? Uh, well, I think it can be done better with the carrot than the stick. In other words, I think it can be done better with tax incentives, money put into research and development and figuring out how to commercialize that research quickly than it can be by saying, you know, you're going to do it this way or you're going to be penalized. Um, I, I, I am, believe strongly that that's the best way to move if you want to move forward in a way that, that makes sense. Um, I will tell you that... Uh, and I've told this story many, many times, Mark, but when I get it up at harvest time, the first thing I do in the morning is fuel up our combines. It takes diesel fuel to do that um, right now. You know, 20 years from now, that combine might be all electric and you'll plug it in when you quit at night and you'll run it all day long based on electricity and, and battery power. 
but, but right now we need diesel fuel. And so until we get the research to be able to replace that in an economical way, I don't think you can put the kind of regulations down that someone want and just say, hey, you're going to do this by 2025, otherwise forget it. It's going to put a lot of people out of business. And by the way, that's not the talking point we should be using. That's the talking point the folks who don't want to do anything against climate change are using. So what we need to talk about is what kind of incentives can we give to help push along uh, fuels that don't put CO2 into the atmosphere. And if we do it from that perspective, I think you'll get a lot more people embracing it. Because look, I'm in production agriculture. I'm an independent guy, all right? 40% of people's income in production agriculture last year came from the federal government. That's not all due to climate change. There were some pretty crappy trade policies that were put into effect that impacted production agriculture very negatively. But the truth is, is that those dollars from the federal government my folks always said are not sustainable. So we've got to figure out ways to make the transition so that there's more competition in the marketplace. I'm off topic here a little bit, but the bottom line is this, if you're going to walk in and say, we're going to regulate you, it's, that's not the right way to go. We ought to be talking about incentives and putting money into R and D commercialize that research and development. And then I think people will come along when they see the opportunity, they will grasp it. How do your colleagues who are on your side of the aisle, but maybe a bit more to the left of you, what's their response when you, when you talk about ad addressing um, uh, climate in that way? What they'll say is you have to push people if you're going to get them to change. You have to, you have to make them uncomfortable if you're going to get them to change. There's some truth to that, by the way. But there's also truth that the margins in production agriculture, because of competition in the marketplace mainly, are pretty thin. And that if, if you push them too hard, you're going to get unintended consequences of putting people out of business. And so uh, I, would, I would prefer and I would make the case to them that this is a much better way to go. Senator Tester, you, uh, of course, are somebody who uh, believes uh, or acknowledges climate change uh, is a problem, um, are working to, um, to fight it. But I wonder, uh, where, where did your awakening occur? You know, um, you've talked about uh, your experiences with climate change um, as a farmer. Is that, is that where you really became aware that this is a, a problem that we, um, that we need to tackle? Yeah, uh, I will tell you, uh, Mark, after being on the farm for over 40 years, you see a lot of things that Mother Nature is trying to tell you, uh, and you need to pay attention to those things. I mean, I could talk about a little bug called a, a wheat stem sawfly that we never used to have when I was a kid that showed up sometime in the 90s. And the reason it's around is because our winters don't get cold enough to kill them anymore. And consequently, they wait till the plant gets almost ripe and then they cut it off and you can't harvest it, you can't get the seeds in the bin. But probably the most seminal moment that I've had when it comes to climate change uh, happened uh, in about 2000. Uh, my father in the late 40s dug a reservoir, this is a hole in the ground basically to water cattle. And uh, he hired a man and brought a cat in a can out and they dug a hole about 35 feet in the ground. And as soon as they got that reservoir dug, it started filling up with water. And there had been water in it ever since for over 50 years until right around 2000. And in 2000 it dried up, not for one year, but for two. Uh, first time in my lifetime that that reservoir had ever 
And and that's when uh, you start putting two, two together because there were a lot of other things too, but this was something that had never happened in my lifetime. And uh, and said, hey, uh, this, is, this is serious business. We better pay attention to what Mother Nature's trying to teach us and, and work with Mother Nature to uh, to fix this problem. And what, what are the conversations that you have with your, your constituents who are, who are skeptical of climate change and are, are maybe having similar experiences as you're having? Do you have those conversations a lot or is environmental policy, is climate change sort of a, a third rail uh, in your uh, retail politics? I, I don't have those com conversations near enough. Uh, I think we need to, it's very, very serious business, so we need to talk about it. Uh, and it depends on what occupation you're in. Uh, but generally, Montana is a pretty fiscally conservative state. Um, Democrats are fiscally conservative, Republicans are fiscally conservative. And if you start talking about the billions, the hundreds of billions of dollars that we're shipping out the door every year at the federal level to take care of disasters that are climate caused, it tends to get people to start thinking. And, and I think that's really important. The other thing is, is that I'm in production agriculture and one of the necessary programs that we have is tax supported uh, crop insurance. That crop insurance is meant to uh, take some of the risk out of farming and it does. So that if you have a drought and you don't cut a very good crop or no crop at all, you get reimbursed through crop insurance. Uh, and I, I talk about that too. I would say, you know, what would happen if we didn't have crop insurance? Then would that change your opinion? But the truth is, Mark, we don't talk about climate change near enough. It's not an easy thing to talk about because whatever we do today, maybe 20, 30 years down the line before we see any benefits from it. And in the society we live today, people like to see immediate benefits for anything we do. So that's a challenge that we have in addressing climate change. When you think about the future of your political career, um, how prominent is this issue in that career? I mean, you say we should talk about climate change more. You should talk about it more. Do you see yourself taking the steps to talk about it more? I mean, it's got to be a difficult issue for you. I mean, it's, it's something that, um, that uh, as you said, I mean, you know, you have very fiscally conservative constituents. And if they feel like you're not being um, you're not being responsible with their uh, with their tax dollars, they're going to vote you out. So um, how do you how do you gauge whether or not you can actually have that conversation? Well, I think you, you you've got to use your instinct and, and and jump when there's an opportunity to jump at it. But I will tell you, it's it's probably not the first thing on people's minds. Uh, in my great state. I mean, I think jobs are always the number one issue. How, how are you going to feed the family? Do you have a job? Do you have a job that, that pays uh, a, a livable wage? Uh, and, and how is a small business climate doing? How is it working? Are, are we able to have a vibrant Main Street in, in our towns in, in Montana? Uh, that's usually on their, on their minds too. And then, of course, production agriculture, our number one industry in the state is on their minds. And and quite frankly, the tourism industry, which is right behind it, is on their minds. So, you know, climate change is down, uh, down the line a little bit. But make no mistake about it, climate change impacts every one of those issues that I just talked about. And so figure out a way to weave in 
climate action is really important, but you need to have a plan uh, at the federal level, at least, that makes sense to people and is not punitive. And if you're able to do that, then it's, it's much easier to talk about. So speaking to your constituents uh, is one thing, but speaking to your colleagues across the aisle, of course, is another. Um, you know, to get things done, whether it's um, uh, climate policy or uh, this infrastructure bill, um, it, it takes, uh, well, I mean, it looks like it's going to take working with Republicans. Now, you said that you believe the filibuster should be in place, but you have also opened the door to that, um, that there may be an option to not have it in place. That may be a moot point uh, since Senator Manchin seems pretty steadfast in his opposition to getting rid of the filibuster. But I also know that you are a person who really, um, you know, uh, enjoys sort of the gamesmanship of legislation. I mean, I, you know, you have some some great tales of your time uh, uh, in the state Senate, um, uh, you know, sparring with uh, the folks across the aisle. How can Democrats get big things done um, with the filibuster in place? Do you have a sense of, of whether that's possible and how that would be um, done? I don't, I don't know if it's possible, Mark, and that's a pretty pitiful statement in and of itself. Um, when Byron Dorgan was a senator from North Dakota my first four years here, Byron made the statement to me one time we were walking down the hall, he says, I don't even know if we could pass a bill to fund the interstate system like they did in the 50s. We tend not to be able to get big things done anymore. That was his perception, and, and in that case, that perception truly is a reality. And, and so I don't know if we can get big things done. I think we have to try. I think uh, bipartisan legislation is much more likely to stand the test of time. But as I've said many times, and I'll say it to you, I didn't come to Washington, D.C. to watch people obstruct and get nothing done. This country has some big challenges. We've been talking about climate change. That's a worldwide challenge. Infrastructure, that's another thing we've been talking about. Look, if we're gonna compete in this world with China and others, we have to have good infrastructure. And it's gonna take Democrats and Republicans working together to do that. Um, the key is, is people have to be willing to compromise. If people are willing to compromise, I think you can get to a point to get things passed in a bipartisan way. If you're locked in on a certain policy or and it can't change, this is just the way it's gonna be, then that idealism comes into place and makes it very difficult to get anything done. But I think if people are willing to compromise, um, there's, some, there's some obstructionists in the United States Senate and, and there will probably always be obstructionists, but we, if we can get 60 votes, we can take to the floor and override that obstruction and I think there's more than 10 Republicans that are willing to work. Now, the question is, are there values in these bills that we are not willing to compromise on as Democrats? Or are there things as Republicans they're not willing to compromise on? Uh, and if that's the case, that makes it much more difficult to get a bipartisan result. We'll be back with more after this message. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. 
from mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. We're going to welcome Senator Tester back for a few minutes of audience questions. Um, so this is where it gets interesting, Senator. All right, first question is, how does the Senator believe we can heal the divide that Trump blew open? So it seems like a pretty simple, uh, simple question to answer. Uh, how, do we, how do we solve that problem? It's, it's, it's not easy, um, I will tell you that, because uh, what President Trump did, uh, you know, putting out misinformation every single day is really tough to overcome. Um, but I think what, you, what we have to do is we have to have respectful, honest communication. Um, I, I compare it to no different than in business, no different in your marriage uh, or any other relationship. When communication breaks down, uh, that's when things tend to go go south on you pretty, pretty badly. And so um, I think it's important that we show respect to the people who disagree with us, but I think you have to tell the truth in a respectful way. And I think that's how you can start the healing. I might add this, I think Joe Biden has done a masterful job in that. Um, I think he's in the president, he has set a very respectful, fine example example, not blowing people off, but listening to them and responding to what they have to say. If they disagree with them, that's fine. He can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think that's kind of old school. And that's what Joe does, I think, instinctually. And I think it's critically important we all start doing that. Be respectful, listen, and then, and then communicate. All right, next question. Uh, can we help small independent farms compete against big agriculture and consolidation? I know that this is, um, that this is an issue that is near and dear to your heart. Um, does it feel like a foregone conclusion that big ag is, um, is, is uh, going to, to squeeze out the, the small farmer? Or is there a, is there a, you know, a resurgence um, that we could see in the, in the future here? You know, a uh, hundred years ago, maybe a little longer, actually, they passed the Packers and Stockyards Act that's on the books. Department of Justice needs to enforce it. Department of Justice needs to enforce it. If they do that, um, I think that it'll instill more competition in the marketplace. And I'm a capitalist and I believe that competition is really, really important. Right now, you basically have four or five and I'm maybe fewer than that companies that control 80% of the world's food supply. That's not competition. That's, uh, that's consolidation. And quite honestly, that's not how it should work. Uh, I will tell you that the other thing that needs to happen is our land grant universities really need to step up and do research for the folks in production ag. I believe right now, a fair amount of the research is done for agribusiness. Uh, and look, agribusiness is an important part of the equation. But the truth is, if you can't make the books balance on the farm, you're going to sell it out. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there, and where I live, by the way, we farm 
1,800 acres. That's about a third the size of the average farm in eastern Montana. Uh, we have supported two families on that farm uh, for 90% of that farm's life. And, and I will tell you that uh, if you have competition, um, then things work a whole lot better and you don't need to farm the huge acreages. And, and if, you have, uh, uh, if you have policies coming out of our land-grant universities that will help the bottom line uh, on cash flow on our, on our family farms, uh, they'll stay in business and they'll be able to hand it down to the next generation and generations after that. But right now, uh, truth is, is that there are a lot of factors that are forcing uh, consolidation in agriculture. And it all starts with the marketplace, both on the, the, the input side and the market side. All right, we've got a couple of questions here from people who are interested in, uh, in, in, in how, how things are gonna get done in the Senate. Um, uh, coming back to the filibuster, um, there's a question of uh, whether there's ways we can change the filibuster to work better without uh, getting rid of it. Again, this is something that I know that you are um, contemplating, thinking about, asking questions about. Um, is there another way? Well, if you think back to the movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, those filibusters were talking filibusters. And that's what I thought a filibuster was when I got to Washington. I didn't know that there were silent filibusters that were going on. I think we need to go back to the days where if you want a filibuster, you need to stand up and talk the entire time until you decide not to filibuster. And I think, uh, I think that's, that's probably one change we could make that would make it uh, much better. You know, this has been, it's been probably 12 years ago. Uh, we had a, a member of the Senate, uh, you know, uh, obstruct a bill, filibuster a bill, and then he jumped on an airplane and went home. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no pain to be had there. Uh, if that person yeah. would have had to hold the door for 20 hours or 24 hours or 36 hours, however long it's going to be, uh, it would have it made the challenge of a filibuster much more challenging. Right. Right. Uh, on similar topic, um, are there Republicans in the Senate right now who are willing to compromise, but um, but have not said so publicly? And I, there, there's no specific. Um, this isn't a question about any specific legislation, but I guess you know you you have written about um, that in the Trump era there were a number of Republicans who would speak in hushed tones about how much they disapproved of the president. I wonder, has that conversation continued, but in terms of being willing to cooperate with the current Democratic president? Yeah, look, I think it depends upon the issue, Mark, but, but, the, but the bottom line is you never know until it's put up for a vote. Um, I remember uh, Max Baucus, who was the senior senator before me, and I served with Max working very, very hard on a health care bill, trying to get bipartisan support. And at the end, he couldn't get one single vote. Um, I think there are people that are willing to compromise on the Republican side, uh, depending on what the issue is. But until you actually take the vote, you never know. Um, this is uh, a good follow on that. So someone asked, they must have um, you know, they know a little bit about you. You have great respect for uh, John McCain the late John McCain. Um, 
is there uh is there a john mccain out there um or someone who's who's maybe gonna step into that role um who uh, wants to negotiate on i mean mccain negotiate on very difficult issues um do you, do you see that willingness from any from any members of the senate right now well just just to say a few words about john mccain really quickly there's there's nobody that i that i fought harder against and nobody that would walk up after those arguments were over with and put his arm around you and, and you knew you were still friends. Uh, John was a, we used to, he was a battler and he battled every day, but, but he believed he didn't take up battles just because somebody told him to do it. He actually believed in what he was battling for. And so I've got a tremendous amount of respect for what John McCain was when he was in the United States Senate. I do think there are people that could that could step into those roles, and I don't want to throw anybody on the bus, so I'm not going to mention any names. But but there are folks on the Republican side who aren't aren't afraid of a good fight and aren't aren't afraid even with their own party too. By the way, it was said that John McCain was only happy if everybody was unhappy with him, uh, and there's some truth to that, by the way. And I think there's some of that mentality that's still there in the United States Senate on the Republican side of folks who are willing to willing to willing to fight regardless of what the consequences might be. Uh, and I look forward to that. They haven't, they haven't gone public yet, but I can think of two people for sure that would fit that mold. Hmm. You're not gonna tell us? It's just a few I, of us. I, I, I would, but I, I just don't wanna, uh, I don't, I don't wanna deter them from doing it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Um, all right, fair enough. Uh, so let's uh, now we're going back to Montana with some questions uh, about about farming. And here's um, uh, here's a question: um, Are Montana farmers mostly raising crops, or um, are there or or cattle? I mean, they would be ranchers who are who are raising cattle. And and what's the what are the implications for for climate around around that? I mean, I know that certainly. Um, cattle have been identified as a major contributor to uh, greenhouse gases. Um, how, walk us through that. What, what's your understanding of, of the industry in the state? So first of all, we've got, we've got far more cattle in Montana than we have people. So there's a lot of people out there raising cattle in Montana. And uh, we, we rank among the highest in pulse and grains, some of the best grains, some of the best pulse crops in the world, I might add, not brag, just fact. And, and I will tell you that the information around cattle, I think, is, uh, um, I think it's, to be honest with you, I'm not a scientist, but I think it's inaccurate because, because of this. So if mm -hmm. cattle do uh, release greenhouse gases, so to speak, the grassland that they're on is an incredible carbon sink. And so I think it more than averages things out, okay? Um, but as far as uh, are there are more acres under cultivation than there are uh, as range for cattle, I, I really don't know. All I know is that they're bo both very, very, very important to Montana's economy. Uh, you're, you're playing it safe. Uh, you don't wanna, wanna uh, misfire on the quiz about, about Montana, right? Um, okay, well, here's one. One of the things, one. About, uh, one of the things that has changed about Montana though, is that uh, just about every, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, had a cow and had a couple hogs. 
and now that's totally changed. And uh, most people, if they're farmers, that's all they're doing is farming. If they're raising cattle, you know, they might have some land under tillage for barley or something like that to feed the cattle. But for the most part, it's all cattle or it's all, all grains or pulses. Uh, recently, that, that's come into the mix too. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I mean, do you feel like that is, uh, um, I mean, is, that, that, is there a loss in, in sort of the culture of, of kind of farming, touching, um, you know, uh, almost every family and now it becoming, you know, uh, not monoculture, but if you're in it, you're in it. If you're not, you're not, right? Well, I mean, I think from a policy, from a policy standpoint, it becomes, it comes, it comes a problem because people um, are losing connection with the land because they're, they've been living in the city and urban areas for generations. And so consequently, it's hard, it's hard for them to remember what their dad or their grandpa or their great grandfather went through because they're removed so many generations from reality. And quite frankly, farming's changed a lot from the 1960s to the day or 1950s till today. It's changed a whole bunch. And so uh, making sure that folks back here in Washington, even in Helena, when I was in Helena, making sure folks in Helena understood what the challenges were can be a challenge in and of itself. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think when you start losing connection with the land, uh, I don't necessarily think that's very helpful. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the conversation. Senator Tester, uh, thank you so much for joining us at the Crosscut Festival. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, Mark, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you and your, your listeners. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Senator Tester for the talk. And thanks to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich and Mo Klaub managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.